And when we have places that are safe, then we can meet with people that are different than us, different viewpoints, different ages, different abilities, and we begin to empathize with their viewpoints. We don't say, oh, I, I agree with you, but we listen. And we can do that when we are in a safe place. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, May 28th, 2021. And in this week's episode, I'm incredibly humbled to share with you this conversation I recently had with the esteemed architect and community designer, Ross Chapin. His firm, aptly named Ross Chapin Architects, is based out of Langley, Washington. But his work, especially over the past quarter of a century, in building sociable, cohesive, livable communities has had a tremendous positive impact worldwide. Certainly due in large part to his fabulous best-selling book, Pocket Neighborhoods, Creating Small-Scale Community in a Large-Scale World, which was released exactly 10 years ago. We cover a lot of ground in our discussions and try our best to provide a verbal description of something that is truly best experienced visually. So I do highly encourage everyone to pull up the landing page for this episode out on activetowns.org as I have included a plethora of photos as well as a video that I produced with Ross a few years ago. But before we get started on this journey with Ross, please allow me a very brief moment to mention that this episode is once again being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Now, if you're in a position to make a contribution, please consider heading over to my website at activetowns.org and click on that bright blue donate button in the top right corner of the page. However, if money is tight right now and making a contribution is just not an option at this moment, no worries. If you find this podcast interesting, entertaining, or insightful, you can still help me out in a significant way by telling your friends, colleagues, and pretty much anyone you think might benefit from or find this content intriguing. Either way, thank you so very much for tuning in and for whatever support you can send my way as I strive to grow the culture of activity movement. One final reminder before we get started, if you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform. This really does help with the visibility of the podcast. Thanks. Okay, time to roll into my conversation with Mr. Pocket Neighborhoods himself, Ross Chapin. Well, Ross, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. What a great pleasure, John. Thank you for inviting me. Well, hey, first of all, thank you so much for taking this time to uh, speak with me today out of your incredibly busy schedule. <laughs> I know it took us a little bit of time to find a date to, uh, to, to identify this uh, opportunity. And we're going to be chatting about building communities for people. But before we dive into all that discussion, can you just share a little bit about you, your background, and how, how you came to, to do this type of work? Hmm, good question. 
Uh, let's see if I can do a short version. Um, you know, I grew up in a intact, coherent neighborhood back in Minnesota, north of St. Paul. And my, uh, my sister and her daughter and her grandchildren are the third, fourth, and fifth generation in the same house that was uh, built uh, within our family and about, began in about 1894. And it was a streetcar uh, community in the turn of the century. And it was a place where you'd walk from the, from the uh, train uh, depot down to the house, and it was on the lake. Large porch. All the houses um, around there were, they didn't have numbers because this was before street, street numbers. And so they had names. And so when I grew up on the porch, uh, down around the lake, around different people's houses, I would listen to the conversations on the porch, uh, you know, in the summer evenings. My grandmother talking about when she was a teenager there in the same location. So my sense of continuity of time and place is perhaps different than many people who move every seven years on average. So when I went off to um, architecture school, uh, this was in the 70s, around that time the interstate freeway system was being completed. And with it came sprawl. And so our town of 5,000 people ballooned to 25,000 and the forests and the fields around our small town uh, were taken over by tract homes. Bland, you got, you know, four basic building types, repeat, 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 repeat. Uh, attach a car, attach two cars. And, and people of all the same age, the same sort of household makeup came in. And the forest behind my home was uh, cut up into tracts. The creek was put, uh, was straightened out and gotten out of the way. And there were more tract homes put in. And I felt it in my body. I, I later, I can reflect on it, but I am very kinesthetic. I feel things. I feel things uh, emotionally. I feel things in my body. And it was not not happy. Let me pause you right there, uh, Ross, just to, to, to clarify one thing. So you went away to architecture school. Where did you go? I went to the University of Minnesota. My dad went there. It's, you know, it's, it was somewhat nearby. Right. So and, and that's in Minneapolis. That's right. Now, what, what was that experience like? We, you know, because one of the things that we... Uh, we talk about and we we reflect on sort of now in hindsight is <laughs> is that some of the things that are taught in architecture school end up being you know almost cringeworthy. What was that experience like for you? Uh, it was both. It was quite expansive on one hand. Uh, I remember my first semester and my first year. I had. Uh, a teacher named Tom Bender. He taught the environmental design class. And he had us, uh, the first couple of weeks, we'd take us out on a four-day retreat um, out in the rural area in Minnesota. And, and um, we were given uh, each team a sheet of plastic and um, you make your shelter. That's it for the week. And he would then set us in and he would take us in. Do you remember Charles and Ray Ames, The Power of Ten? I don't. 
they they created a film back in the 60s, late 70s, 70s, where they would, and Tom would take us on a meditation. You've got 80 first-year students, and he'd take us into the feeling and listening to the place, and then he would um, guide us in powers of 10, one meter above our bodies, 10 meters above our bodies, 100 meters, and he'd take us into eventually the stellar regions of the universe and then all the way back down and then into our bodies and then into the, the molecular area and atomic and then out. And then he would somehow or another have a, I don't know how he did it out there, but had a recording of humpbacked whales and talk about the community of whales. So this is in the early seventies. It's the kind of things that were being done. So when you say it was stifling, my God, I was transformed uh, just by that first week that year, we ended up asking questions about how much energy does a building use? How does it relate to the land? What are our ties to the land itself? And we did research into how a building might be uh, energy efficient to the point of, of being self-sufficient. Now we'd call it off the grid. And so we designed and then uh, they found land, surplus land with the university, and we built a completely off-the-grid house. It's called Ouroboros. It's the mythical dragon that eats its tail to survive. And it was solar, active solar, passive solar, Clivus Multrum composting toilet system, earth sheltered. It was cooled by the, by the soil. It had a, we worked with wind generation from a farmer's windmill. So these things were quite, in fact, I think extremely progressive. Yeah. This was before the oil embargo. And the project that we did as first-year students ended up on the cover of Smithsonian Magazine and Popular Science at the time. I also had design, and I'll, I'll just follow this up. I had design, design teachers that did the rote problem-solving kind of thing and it's in terms of trying to project design. And it really, to my sense now, didn't get to how are we promoting life? How are we living in concert with what's around us and with the resources we have. That wasn't in the, in the curriculum. Yeah. So after graduation from architecture school there at the University of Minnesota, did you stay around the, that area and go right to work? I, well, let me just say after three years, I was expanding, and I'll, I'll answer that question, but I was just expanding in my sensibility. I was a young kid. You know, and architecture school is getting more and more focused and detailed. And meanwhile, I was expanding and into we're taking sociology and history and philosophy and so forth. And I ended up taking a year and a half and I went off and I lived in Europe, worked with an architecture firm in southern Germany in an old town, a Roman town, and traveled around Europe hitchhiking and bought a bicycle and traveled 1500 miles just researching and searching and playing and, and came back and was thinking, you know, maybe I should change schools because this is not quite addressing what I, what, I, what I want. I was enlivened by what I found in Europe. I could see places that had history going back. I mean, history where I was was 80 years old. History over there is 800 years old, 1,500 years old. There's nothing the same. 
and there's a there's a vernacular there's a there's a web of living physical world that was just phenomenal to experience and it was not designed by architects that went to the university or planners it 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 emerged and so i was thinking well maybe i get another perspective and i i traveled out to berkeley thinking that well maybe i'll go to the university of california and i found that most of my credits would not transfer and so i was in the library and the librarian we were chatting and she said you know i want to you might want to take a look at what's going on um here there's a professor uh, christopher alexander that's working on a book called the pattern language and there was a room where all the manuscripts and all the things were being uh worked on so i went in there and oh my gosh i was i just electricity was going through me because for me design was play i just would play until it felt right mucked around until magic happened and alexander for some of your listeners who may not know was working on a project to try to identify what makes a place successful well regarded alive people feel comfortable there it just fits and he identified patterns and relationships of places and patterns uh, from from regions down to minor tiny details and it gave me a structure of how places in the world can come together with coherence with wholeness with aliveness and he and he had a process by which that could emerge and so i copied as much as i could and i said okay i'm going to go back i'm on a roll with the university of minnesota and i'll finish up there and i ended up taking what i could and that became the the filter the lens by which i would do all of my projects and then in finishing school i left and i i said you know we've done all of this and i want more hands on and so i wanted to do more construction and I, so i got a feeling of that uh, and more but that's that's a little side piece i think that's important for me because where i'm coming from i'm i'm i mean we all have people that inspire us and i took took chris alexander's work on very early on i never studied with him i met him on occasion several times but that became the foundation for my own work and growth in planning and building and design and in living yeah and and such a powerful piece of work body of work book <laughs> the pattern language book is is one of my favorites to pull off of uh, the shelf as well and speaking of books your book <laughs> before long before i met you i had your book uh, pocket neighborhoods creating small scale community in a large scale world now that was published 10 years ago exactly 10 years ago now isn't that amazing and it has continued to uh, i think influence planners city officials architects lay people it's not a a, a niche book in the sense of of uh, it's sold only at uh, planning in the planning world there are people all over the country and beyond and around the world that respond to it because i think that there is a yearning for authentic place for true community for a scale of relationships in our lives that help us understand and relate to the larger world beyond which is getting more and more uh, 
frayed and incoherent in many ways and, and stressed. Yeah. And when you say you were enlivened by what you saw and experienced in Europe, I see that in the communities that you're you're developing. So for the audience, let's try to, uh, since they're, they're listening to this, so let's try to describe what a pocket neighborhood is. So we can come along um, on a street, maybe a busy street, and uh, we'll come to a place. I'll describe the, the first one that we did, but I could describe many. And what happens as you go on by, you realize that the, between the houses is a little opening and you can see something in there. It's enticing. You find a place to park or maybe you're walking through the neighborhood and you walk up to the place where you can peek in and you feel like, oh, hmm, I'm not sure if I should go any further. And yet, is it public? Is it private? It's a little, you're a little bit unsure. As you walk through the gateway, you go from a relatively busy street and into the courtyard. And almost everybody that walks in, they go from, you know, more loud speaking out in the street and engagement, and they begin to slow and their, their voice becomes hushed. And they look around and they pay attention. Because what we've created is a room of shaped by houses around and a tree in the center of a calm lawn and a little um, porches overlooking. And so this is a cluster of small homes. Pocket neighborhoods are pockets of nearby neighbors. So in the typical world subdivisions that are created, you've got houses with facades and fronts, typically with a lot of garage doors and a living room window that um, maybe nobody's in because it's too formal, looking out to a street that nobody's on because it's really not walkable. And the houses then orient to their private backyard and that's the world away. That's your retreat from a crazy world. What pocket neighborhoods do is expand a zone between the, the public world and the private world and create an intermediate space, the shared commons. And the houses are turned 180 degrees typically, so you've got porches and kitchens facing the shared space. And then behind that, you've got private rooms, which might open out onto a little private garden. And then you've got rooms up above. So you've got a layering of between public and private. And the intermediate layer is expanded. It's a safe zone. So as we come in to the shared commons, it's very likely that somebody's going to notice us and come out to their porch and saying, are you looking for someone? Can I help you? What that does is create a zone of safety. And so a child who naturally at three years old is going to um, uh, you know, be curious about what's beyond the front door or you're out in the yard, what's beyond the gate. And if, if you know, Johnny's missing your mom is not going to freak out because Johnny just went out into the commons where Johnny finds other shirt tail aunties and grandmas and parents and other kids to play with. You, you, you become your first layer of free range um, children. You, your horizon expands with your development horizon. Now, a person who is an elder who feels very safe because they know there are others around. 
uh, either to help or maybe they're taking, you know, they're walking in the commons and they, they fall. They know that somebody may be around. You know, they're not isolated like, like you know, we, we, we think, oh, the ideal is to live where you don't see any neighbors. Well, that's great until you maybe fall and can't get up when you're in, an elder person. So a pocket neighborhood is a cluster of nearby neighbors, and it's generally 6 to 8 to 12. If you've got a larger neighborhood, uh, it might be a cluster of 10 linked to a little walkway to another cluster of 6. Uh, cars are corralled to the side. Uh, they might be attached, but the cars don't dominate. This is walkable. And if it's part, if you take a look at the, um, at the ideal urbanism, you've got walkability through neighborhoods. And this is an extension of that. It's the, an extension of the walking network. So uh, larger, so we've done infill pockets of, of uh, maybe on an acre with eight to 10 or 12 houses. And then we've done whole neighborhoods where the sociability is a strategy for how the neighborhood is organized. And so it might be 20 or 30 acres with houses that are naturally sociable, like large porches opening onto a quiet pedestrian street. And it might be combined with, with um, pocket neighborhoods um, off the street. It might be live-aboves uh, opening onto an alley. And this is part of the, the DNA, I think, of a living, healthy community, the structure of community. So you just mentioned uh, some density numbers uh, out there. So for, for some of the listeners that might be wondering, well, how does that compare? How does that compare <laughs> to, you know, sort of that typical suburban sort of, uh, you know, tract home uh, pattern? How, how does this sort of compare in terms of the, the number of units and the number of people who are living? So a tract home subdivision might have three to four units per acre. Each, each lot might be a quarter acre. Cities and towns might have 60 by 120, 700, and that's what, seven, six, five units to the acre, something like my numbers are off right now. But pocket neighborhoods will have seven, eight, nine, 10, maybe 12 units to the acre of detached houses. You can go beyond that and go up to 15 or 20 units to the acre, but they need to be attached. The idea that you've got density, this is not so much about you can have more density because they can be closer together, but we really pay close attention to how the houses nest together so that when you open a window, you're not looking at somebody opening their window looking at you. So you can have the houses quite close together and still have the same or more privacy that you might have in a suburban neighborhood. So... Our projects of detached homes are typically probably 8 to 11 units to the acre. Fantastic. So bottom line, more housing. More housing of a wider range. Yeah, of, of a wider range. And you, you also mentioned something earlier um, that I want to come back to because you, I, I sort of cut you off and you were talking about how that forest being eliminated sort of really touched you. And the reason why I want to circle back to this is because when we were together at one of your, your developments and we were at the, the back 
sort of porch area of that common building, you look out on this beautiful forest. So go go back to to that because I think you 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 even channeled that I think in the video that I produced huh. uh, about that forest. Well, the piece of we're talking about Danielson Grove, and this is in Kirkland, Washington. And this is a property that was uh, about two and a half acres. It was in many senses, now yeah, in some sense, a legacy of the family that owned it. In the 1960s, the family had accumulated um, uh, a large parcel or several large parcels. He's a builder. And he ended up over the years subdividing and building, subdividing and building. And this is in the suburb of Seattle. So back in the 60s, you could have a 10-acre parcel. And what happened was that over the years, all the little little cut-up pieces became houses. And then Kirkland, which is near Bellevue, which is near where Microsoft is, and the everything was being just skyrocketed in prices and, and a lot of townhomes and things are being cut up. So this is the last remnant of this family. And Mr. Danielson, who had owned it, he had a shop on the property and he was tending the trees. And he, this, is, this was their, their land. And his wife was so concerned that this land would have to be cut up and divided like everything else. And all the trees that were on the property would just be taken down because it's easiest to develop that way. And we came in uh, it's, it was part of Kirkland's program at the time. They had an um, a innovative housing demonstration code. And it said for a two-year period, we will accept anyone's, typically put it out to a developer community or architect, we will accept anyone's proposal, not accept, but take a look at it for a new zoning approach. We were trying a lot of things, but you guys might have some good ideas. And so we put together a code that would said, okay, in, in this residential zone, we would like to build at one and a half times the underlying density, an incentive to build at higher density. If houses were limited in size, double the density if they're under 1,000 square feet and, and one and a half times the density if they are under 1,500 square feet. So we had a mix. So we came in, we, we created this, um, the zoning proposal, created a plan for the site. And I'm going to answer your question. This is a bit long-winded here. And so they accepted in those, that two-year period only two or three projects, two or three proposals. And we not only des- designed it, made the code, but we followed through and we built it. And the thing about pocket neighborhoods is that they are flexible. And so we saved 80% or 70% of the trees that were there. So we could work around the groves of trees. This isn't a grove in name only, you know, Oakdale, Danielson Grove. This is a grove. And so you've got trees that are 80, 90 feet tall. And you've got some heritage trees. You've got some uh, uh, groves of groups of trees. So what you saw was was right behind Mr. Danielson's shop, and we took the flagpole that had his American flag, and we, we put that as the focal point of the center commons. And so from the commons building, we looked across the green. Here was Mr. Danielson's flagpole, and behind it, a beautiful grove, 
of hemlocks and uh, cedar and fir. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So we were able to preserve that uh, that forest. And and I and I felt it in in your presence, and and it came through on the video of of how much that meant to you that you were able to save that grove, yes, but then also be able to do this, you know, time and time again in terms of creating developments, creating community that taps into uh, well-being and social cohesion and and some of these other things. And because that really gets to the, answering the question of why would somebody want to live in a pocket neighborhood? Yeah, yeah. You know, to live in a close-knit neighborhood, it's not for everyone. I think there's a spectrum of, I think we need, especially in this year where we're re-emerging out of a year and a half of, of uh, COVID social distancing, truly social distancing, we realize how important it is. Humans are sociable creatures. We chat, we tell stories, we exchange body language, we reminisce, we, we argue, we talk politics, talk whatever. Uh, hang around while the kids are playing. It's part of the role of life. And when when we're in that mix, that milieu of sociability, it feeds us in a way. And there's a range of sociability that, that different people are wired for. But generally, humans are sociable creatures. Now, I have identified a what I call the spectrum of, of community. So... If you think about subdivisions in America post-war, they're oriented toward the American dream of, of you've got your own house, it's behind a picket fence, and then later you've got all these, you know, the garage doors and you've got the big room. It's your own thing. It's your own world. You're, you're independent. And except you take that and the houses become bigger and bigger and farther and farther out and walkability disappears because everything is around the car and parents become chauffeurs and gophers for the children from four years old to 16 years old. And it's a monoculture. And it, that we now have, since the kids have gone home, gone, left home, and the dogs uh, have died, people are fine until they're not fine. Uh, they get a little bit older and they can't drive in the evening or something happens and there's not a neighbor around to help. And so that's not working. So I say in terms of planning, let's say no to planning that is only about auto connection that isolates us essentially. Now, but within that, what is the choice of living in a happy love commune? No. Okay. So maybe for some people it is, but for most of us not. So I've identified a spectrum of community. And so, you know, a home of your own, a simple home. My aunt and uncle live in New York City in an apartment and they can go from there. They don't, they see, they know a couple of their neighbors in the, in the apartment, but they go out onto the street and they're um, up and down the street and there are familiars. They walk a dog. They have uh, people in the park, at the cafe. And so you've got a, an embedded walkable community that you go out to by choice. But where you live is not necessarily sociable. So the next part of the spectrum is that you've got naturally sociable neighborhoods, places with 
uh, room-sized porches onto a quiet, walkable street. And so there's no dues, there's no agreements, there's no nothing. You, this is, you might have a garden uh, there that you garden in, and just in li- life going on, so- sociability happens. It's what happens. Okay. So then the third niche in the spectrum is more intentional neighboring communities, like what we've done, pocket neighborhoods, where you've got people and sociability is a clearer sense. And you share a common ground, which means that you, you have agreements. You have decisions to make, financial decisions to make. There are disputes that will come up. Um, you know, a dog doing their duty out on the lawn. Well, who cares for the lawn? Who, care, who, who makes sure that the, the dog is, is doing the right thing? Lots of issues. So you've got, you've got um, tools for getting along, tools for making decisions. And you've then got the opportunities for places to gather, maybe around uh, a, uh, a fireplace or the grill or something like that. Or if more advanced, you might have a four-season room with a uh, little kitchenette with doors that open out onto a terrace. This is intentional neighboring. It's not for everyone. It's what I've concentrated on, but it's not for everyone. And then beyond that in the spectrum is uh, what I call caring and sharing neighboring. So in our lives, all of us, I'm sure, we know people that are disabled, might have a mental disability. It might be a physical disability. We know that there are, and maybe some of us are foster children. There are uh, aging people. And instead of warehousing people with extra needs, shipping them off where, where care can be delivered top down, and good care for sure, but it's top-down delivery, rather than recognizing that when you're in a place that holds people of different abilities, that there is self-supporting agency. So you've got an elder who otherwise might be alone around maybe um, a young family with young children coming in, or maybe there is a disabled uh, person there and the elder, or maybe there's foster children in the, in the community. And they are supporting the foster children and the foster children and finding meaning and sense of belonging and purpose. And the foster children have stability, somebody caring for them, have a, a way in which they're held. So this spectrum of community is what I have um, identified and I'm concentrating on as it should be in the toolbox of development. So we're not just serving, you know, one off. And what you're hearing in this description is the sociable dimension. I haven't said anything about what they look like. I haven't said anything about the style, uh, even about the density. But I've talked about sociability all through the spectrum. And a lot of times planners are working on walkability, on densities on affordability and housing affordability and all of that. And yes, yes, all of that. And I'm bringing in the sociable dimension. How has, because you brought it up, how has the pandemic either influenced the interest in, in, in pocket neighborhoods? 
Um, I can see it from both angles. I can see it from of it being like the if someone's in a uh, currently in a very, very dense you know, situation, maybe in a high rise condo or apartment complex or something like this, this seems, you know, like the, the, you know, wonderful because it's, it's not as close, but if someone was, is, you know, out <laughs> in a rural context, this might seem really, really scary because it's so much, much closer than, than what they're thinking of in, in being in like the exurbs or, or, or a traditional suburban pattern. But what have you noticed in these early stages as we're starting to come out from the peak of, of, of lockdown and the pandemic? It is both. I think that we have recognized how important sociability is. Just seeing someone across the courtyard, talking with somebody, going out, you know, just being around them is part, it just helps calm us. It helps relax us. At the same time, there are different outlooks toward the distancing. If uh, you've got, uh, there's one community that I'm a part of where you've got two or three families who decided to be a bubble together. And they're very careful and they are, you know, they're responsible for one another. And the kids are playing without masks and the adults are together without masks. They're like a, a family. They're a chosen family. And they're all watching how they are out in the world. But you've got others in the community who um, are really, really traumatized by this whole situation and feel very, very vulnerable. And they might be vulnerable. And when they see somebody without a mask, it really triggers um, it brings up traumas that they might have had, uh, brings up real feelings. And so you've got a clash of, of, of those, and it's been challenging. The good thing about the community that I'm speaking about is that they have a way in which they hold the differences, hold the, the stresses within them, honor the different points of view, try to work it out. And, and some of these, these differences have been really challenging to work out. And if you were on your own, you know, out in exurbia, you wouldn't have those challenges. But you also wouldn't have the opportunities to, to see other people in the course of the daily life, out in the garden, pruning a tree, whatever. So it's, it's a real mix. So for regular listeners to the podcast, they've heard me say this before, but um, I'll, I'll put this out and, and have you respond to it. One of the things that we noticed here in our neighborhood is that we saw an, an increase in the number of people walking and biking in the roadway, in the streets. Our neighborhood was was platted in the 1920s, 1930s. Most of the houses right here in our block were built in the mid-1940s. Uh, there's no sidewalks, and so everybody walks in the middle of the street. Everybody bikes and pushes their baby strollers in the middle of the street. You know, we saw a, a tenfold, a twentyfold increase in the number of people walking, biking, uh, coming out of their houses, maintaining social distance. But it seemed like there was a hunger for some level of sociability. Let, let me have you just kind of respond to that. What town do you live in? What city? Uh, it's in Austin, Texas, right here in the downtown Austin, Texas area. Okay. Uh, it, again, 
what you're talking about is a uh, lively, walkable neighborhood. And when you've got places that welcome that, places that are safe to be walkable, then people will be out walking and bicycling. And if there are places that are little pockets for people to mingle. In Portland, the building repair world, there's, I, I talk about this in my book, there are places where the, uh, the community has come together and they create a place that it might be a little covered shelter at the corner. Somebody pulls back their front property to create a, a little pavilion that's shared by the community. Or it might be a couple of benches with a little garden plot uh, right there. You pull the fences back and you give that to the community. What you were just describing reminds me of our little free libraries, but on steroids. Yes. Uh, imagine a poetry cupboard where you're, you open up the, the cupboard, you look in, you could read a poem, and there's a place where you could write a poem. And then you offer it. So it's a little poetry cupboard. I heard recently, and I haven't seen them, but there's the local neighborhood pantry. And so you might have, it depends upon what neighborhood you're in. Some, some places, you know, food is, is stress, is stressed. And so you, you put different things in the pantry that anybody else can come and take. It's a gesture, John, of what is it that I, that I have to offer? What is it that I have to give? And when the world is, when we are each individually fearful of the world, we're going to pull in and we're going to barricade. We're going to be either aggressive or we're going to retreat, you know, completely. And I think a healthy world starts with having safe places for everyone and have places that invite people out and to engage and when we engage face-to-face -face and in small groups, I think our better nature comes forward. When we are out of scale, this is where the, I talk about small-scale community in a large-scale world. Small-scale community are the faces around that when you're in conversation, everybody is engaged in that circle. If you are one person and the scale jumps to hundred or one person to the town, you've missed, the, you've missed scale. Or one person online uh, that's anonymous twittering to the world and you can get our lower natures come out because we, we're not face to face. This is the scale of sociability. The scale of sociability, think about a, a um, a dining or a, a table with with people it might be a long table, and uh, the host might pull us all together and um, raise a toast to whoever's birthday it is or whatever. And then the conversation goes on, and the conversations break up into uh, one to either side and a couple across, and you've got these naturally occurring conversations up and down a long table. If this were a block, these would be pockets of nearby neighbors, pocket neighborhoods on a block. The block has a sense of sociability and identity that works, but within that are these small clusters. That sociability is what we're wired for. That scale of sociability for 200,000 years that we've been around or more. This is what we do. We are, we are wired for it. We, we, 
And when we don't have it, we then get, we're divorced from our bodies, where our wiring and our brains get all mixed up, um, and then we don't feel safe. So again, the fear thing. When we're not safe, then we meet the world aggressively or retreat from the world and feel like everything is, you know, we're, we're, we're victims. But when we have places that we're safe, then we can come out. And when we have places that are safe, then we can meet with people that are different than us, different viewpoints, different ages, different abilities, and we begin to empathize with their viewpoints. We don't say, oh, I, I agree with you, but we listen. And we can do that when we are in a safe place. Yeah, yeah. What are the biggest challenges to creating more communities like this? Well, I was going to, I mean, there's lots of things that you can immediately tag. Uh, zoning, development standards, consumer expectations, uh, money, uh, especially now when the costs of construction and development are so much, it's just it's really, really, really crazy. So, okay, that said, early along when my Pocket Neighborhood book came out, and I realized that this was not just for the development community and the planning community and the architects. So I'm speaking with people and they say, well, I'm not any of those. How do I create community? And I said, well, you can create community where you live now for little or no money. How? Well, um, consider for a time moving your picnic table to your front yard. Take some grass out and plant tomatoes, corn. Put up a little stand, a tomato stand. You know, offer a bench to you know in your, your front area for you know people walking down. Maybe there's a little dog watering bowl that might have a self uh, self filling bowl, so they always have fresh water. A little more budget. Um, your house is a tract home, uh, no porch. Uh, build a porch and build it room sized so that it engages. It's a place that's extended. You extend from the inside out and you can easily slip in. But the porch has edges to it. So it feels safe and it might be a little border of of planting and and uh, maybe a little fence in front of that and have it so it overlooks life going by. These are fairly simple things to do. There's quite a number of others. A lot of it is just a gesture. I grew up in Minnesota. And if there's a car stopped, somebody in it, and it's 10 below zero, you're going to stop and you're going to say, are you guys okay? Do you need a lift anywhere? You've got, uh, if you're able, you will be uh, out with your snow shovel when the snow's falling. Not just doing your own, but doing, you know, a neighbor's yard. Because they're getting old and, and, you know, vulnerable to a heart attack. A lot of this is a gesture of, of giving, a gesture of offering. And it's, it's fairly straightforward, fairly simple. It doesn't require any money. Right, right. I love that. <laughs> That's so fantastic. It makes me makes me think about our front yard and and little tweaks uh, because we're going through a little bit of a a, a redo uh, of relandscaping uh, our front yard um, after the big winter storm that we had killed off sixty uh, percent of my cactus out there. And so 
I'm thinking of ways to make it even more welcoming. Uh, it's right now when things are in bloom, uh, many of the neighbors who are walking by with their family, with their, with their dogs, they'll pause and, and they'll chat with us as we're uh, out underneath our front tree. But um, I just, I took that note and saying, you know, make your front, more, your front yard even more welcoming to, to the community. I want to stick with with the, the the difficulty of being able to bring these things forward for just a moment, because you did mention in passing codes and things of that na- nature, zoning and things of that nature. Uh, in, in some places, it's it's literally illegal to do to build this type of community. Correct. That's correct. That's correct. I think that the automobile era. And you could describe when it would start and when it's finishing. It's, it's, it's the highlight of sort of a certain era of the American dream. And we're past the, the apex. And we're coming down from the idea of, of the um, independent cowboy or the mom, dad, 2.2 kids, you know, Ozzie and Harriet with the dog and the cat and all of that. It's, we are to a place where the society as is reaching natural limits isolation loneliness is an epidemic that has dire consequences and a lot of this loneliness is coming because of the structure of the development communities that have happened over the last 60 years and so we end up having people isolated oftentimes isolated in age groups and i think the more mixed we can be uh, of ages, of household sizes, of types, of incomes, the better off we are. And to do that, we need to have communities that welcome a variety of household types. So instead of all single family, there'd be a place for backyard cottages. There'd be a place for a, a duplex so you could ha- own a home and you could offer rent to someone who can't afford to buy a home. And their rent actually helps pay your mortgage. There's a place for an aging parent. There's a place for a young couple starting out. It might be tiny houses. It might be a place for in the community with people who are, who are um, marginalized, who have been homeless, who need the sense of stability. And so then that there are communities that can be within other communities, larger communities that, that have a place for people in transition as I said, place for people who might be, have disabilities, foster kids, elders. The more mixed, the more places we have, the better. Now, this is uh, highlighted for those of us in the planning world. The missing middle uh, has come on as a meme, a, a sense of, of we need to get back to what was allowed before the, the thermostat age when you're in a neighborhood and there are little shops, corner shops, corner stores, there's uh, the, uh, the shopkeeper who lives above the store. You've got uh, a little backyard granny flat. You've got uh, maybe a fourplex uh, apartment building. And these are all in a neighborhood. And they all fit and they all go together. We're getting back to that. And there's more and more zoning codes now that are welcoming missing middle. So if you look up missingmiddlehousing.org, you're going to see quite a bit. And pocket neighborhoods or cottage courts are one of the missing middle types. Yeah. 
you had so many <laughs> wonderful things in there that I want to touch upon. Uh, you know, the affordability uh, is there. Uh, you had mentioned, you know, the the, the marginalized uh, communities and 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 other folks that are having difficulty, and that reminds me of the the community first uh, development uh, that that Austin has out in 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 Travis County. And you you mentioned this several times. You use the words "get back to," dot dot dot, and. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of where where I grew up in uh, in Southern California, and I remember seeing these courtyard areas. In fact, I think my great grandmother actually lived in one of these uh, sort of uh, complexes. They were very very common in the Pasadena area and some of the these other places. So I have this vivid memory as a, as a very very young child of seeing this, and so I felt like I was getting hugged when I was in some of your pocket neighborhoods there in, in Washington because I was like, oh yeah, the, the architecture looks different, but it, the feeling is there and it, and it had that central courtyard area and that sense of cohesion and, and all of that. So I, I totally get, get you on that uh, aspect of what you were saying there of get back to because we used to do this. And so we are just like you mentioned earlier too, you know, being able to do the backyard cottages and the accessory dwelling units. We used to be able to do that very easily. So in the, in the 1920s in LA, I may have the numbers wrong, but I'm relative. Cottage courts or bungalow courts that were originated in Pasadena in about 1911, 1910, through the teens and early 20s, they represented 7% of, of the households within LA. 7%. This isn't just, oh, a couple here and, and it's a thing. This is uh, thousands of them. And in later years, they, they morphed. Uh, the whole notion of motel happened in 1925 when the auto age was really taking off. And you've got these um, auto courts. Well, that came right out of Pasadena. What I absolutely love about that, Ross, is that this is gentle density. Yes. And so that brings us back around to the, the fight that many communities are going through right now as they're struggling to try to change their codes and their zoning codes and, and what is allowed. And whenever we have change, there fear sorts to bubble up and there's this fear of of oh my gosh you know what you know what is this going to destroy the character of of our neighborhood and the values and the value of of, of properties yes. and bringing in oh those kind of people yeah and i think it is i think it's an overreaction in in many cases um we see that battle happening here in austin right now is uh, the city council had been trying and, and staff had been trying to do a code rewrite and uh, the fear mongering kind of takes over and the fear of change sort of takes over. And and I just I, I, I want to grab these people. I want to say, please take a look at this book. <laughs> take a look at Pocket Neighborhoods. It doesn't have to be fear inducing. We can have gentle, gentle density. So so two two small Two quick things on that. When I'm uh, meeting with a city uh, uh, group that's coming out, and sometimes they come out strong, you know, and, you know, development is happening in the neighborhood. Oh, my God. And you, the place is just packed. What I try to do is to 
bring people back to their own lives. Do you know somebody in your family who's, um, who's uh, aging, who could welcome a small place to live surrounded by younger people who have care? Or maybe they're better off being shipped off to a care center of 300 homes where, where the, you know, they, they can provide professional care. You know, do you know anybody that's divorced, that's not a full mom-dad intact family? Do you know someone who is disabled? So what I try to do is to bring it home to, to people's own lives. Have you ever been in a place where you've lost a job, you might be hit by a, a health thing, and you're really at an edge uh, financially? What are your options? A strong community has a place for everyone. And everyone is, who would that be? Well, what's your own life? Span your own people in your own field of family and friends. Are there places for everyone in your community? That Are they welcomed? So that's a, that's a key piece. The other side of it is developers, so many have been profit-driven. And they're around uh, the institutions of of development, of zoning, which basically says we need to provide housing that is economical, and that is production. And that means you clear everything out and you stamp, 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 because that's the least expensive. And the only thing that's of value is less expensive housing so that some people can make more profit. And developers, I mean, look at the world that that is in America. Most of the built world will not be identified as beautiful. Go to Europe and people, they're not complaining about density. People says, oh my gosh, I was, I just went to Florence or Vienna or wherever. And it's like the density is eight times what it is in most American communities. We're not complaining about the density. We're talking, coming back and talking about how beautiful it was. So development can be beautiful, but we have a legacy in America of development that has delivered on one thing, you know, lower cost housing, bigger and bigger houses for hopefully less and less money. But somebody's making money. So money is at the central part of it rather than community and the strength of community and the resilience of community. Yeah, yeah. I love that you uh, channeled the, the, the meme of the vacation. We go on vacation to these beautiful places and we come back and we're raving about how walkable and bikeable and we never once got into a car. We, you know, the, everything was just so rich and diverse. And then, you know, we come back to our own communities and we're like, well, we can do that here. And it's like, oh, no, no, that could never happen here. We, yeah, it's like, no, seriously, we could do that. Well, hey, Ross, are there any additional things that we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure that we uh, we discussed today? John, that'll be another conversation. We could go another hour. We could. We could totally do that. This is so much fun. I, you're on to such good things. And I just want to maybe offer my little last piece. And we get into causes of walkability and bikeability and um, missing middle housing and, and um you know, different kind of development types and pocket neighborhoods. Oh, how cool. You know, they're all part of the toolbox. Choose a metaphor. It's, it's part of a tapestry. And the tapestry is about how our communities can not only be living and beautiful, but uh, in a way that is resilient to meet the world that we're in. 
and to have a place that, that we can come home to and we can come when we're home, that we can come out and meet others with our strengths and be okay with sharing our vulnerabilities. In these places, we feel most alive. And these places are ones that, that we can pass on from generation to generation. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Ross, it's such a pleasure having you on the Active Towns podcast. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. Wonderful. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 76 of the Active Towns podcast. I certainly hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ross as much as I did. Whenever I talk with Ross, I come away feeling like there really is hope for humanity. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to click on through to the landing page for this episode to experience the rich visuals of these communities. And you may want to watch my seven minute video that I produced from a tour that Ross led at several of the communities that he helped design and develop. A big part of creating a culture of activity is having more housing within walking and cycling distance of meaningful destinations. Pocket neighborhoods are a beautiful, humane way for us to achieve gentle yet significant densities that work well within the context of existing communities. If you agree, perhaps we all need to work a little harder at making these and accessory dwelling units legal once again. Okay, it's that time again, my final fundraising plug for this episode that is. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. Each and every donation is truly appreciated and makes a huge difference in allowing me the ability to continue producing this content and growing the culture of activity movement. Thank you all so very much. That's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. <laughs>